0: Kroger, fresh for everyone, fuel restrictions apply. James Baldwin spent so
1: much time out of the country. And you know, um, when I was a junior in college, I studied in England for the year and I was 20 years old when I went. And it was the first place in my entire life where people wanted to know who I was as opposed to tell me who I was.
2: Welcome to the Black Business of Broadway, a podcast brought to you by the Broadway League and Black to Broadway. Here, we highlight the stories, how-tos, and successes of the Black professionals and legends of Broadway. I'm your host, Janine Scott. Not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I believe this Baldwin quote sets the stage for today's conversation. And joining me today, I have April Mathis and Greg Sargent. April and Greg are actors and company members of Elevator Repair Service. Elevator Repair Service creates original works with an ongoing ensemble. And their most recent production of Baldwin and Buckley at Cambridge was conceived by today's guest, Greg, and can be seen at the public. First, I want to thank you both for this important work. When I heard Baldwin and I was like, I'm there. There was there was there was nothing that needed to be done to convince me. So thank you again for joining me today.
1: Thank
3: you. Thanks for having us.
2: (laughs) So before we dig into Baldwin and Buckley at Cambridge. I'd like to hear from either one of you um, your story, how you got here and um, and why Baldwin.
1: My parents are from Guyana, South America. Um, My mother immigrated here in 1955 and um, my father in 1960. 61 um, they were engaged for like a long period of time and um, my mother came over as a nurse and my father was a university student in the UK uh, when my father had saved up enough money uh, my mother moved to England they got married in England but my mother hated England she thought it was cold and dirty and still recovering from um, World War II and she convinced my father to move back to New York um in the in the early 60s um when everything was crazy here with civil rights um and so i was born in the early 60s and um lived in brooklyn for the first seven years of my life and then my family moved to an all-white community on long island coincidentally the town of baldwin Um, Baldwin has a recurring theme in my life. I played the piano as a very young child, and we had a Baldwin piano. Then we moved to the town of Baldwin. My, uh, I have a day job, and my boss's name is Baldwin, and now we're doing Baldwin. So I have Baldwin, it was destined. When my family moved to Baldwin, my father sat my sister and I down and said, there are people that are very, very, very upset that, we've moved to this town. It was an all-white town. We were like the third family. He told us that we couldn't express any anger. Uh, We couldn't um, retaliate in any way. We had to be the representatives of our race. I was seven. My sister was six. And that was heavy. It was really, really heavy. So, you know, I always tried to be on my best behavior. My family's churchy. So, you know. (laughs) Go figure. uh, So, you know, that was a... That was like my foundation. But I would look around and I would see that the people that, um, that I went to school with that lived in the area, the white children, there was a different set of rules. And I guess I got very angry about the situation and I started acting out. And my parents were very worried I was going to go down some horrible, dark path because I was angry. I was so, so angry as a child. Thank God I found the theater. The theater actually saved my life because um, when I discovered the theater, it gave me a voice. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, people had to come to the theater and listen to me speak for two hours uninterrupted with a particular point of view. That wasn't happening in life. And um, I gravitated to the theater because of that very reason. So every single decision I have made since the age of 12 was how could I be an actor, and especially a stage actor. I did community plays. I performed in churches and parks. I took acting classes in the city at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts when I was 15 and 16. I studied at Boston University um, the summer of 11th grade. I was a theater major. I studied in England. I have a master's a fine arts degree um, in acting, and then I moved to New York City and studied with this great teacher named Bill Esper. And um, for years, I was just trying to get work and trying to get work in commercial theater, but there weren't that many opportunities available to me. And so um, quite by accident, I I got a phone call from a man named David Herskowitz. David Herskowitz is the artistic director of Target Margin Theatre. And he asked me to audition to replace somebody in a show that he was doing. I did not get the role in that particular show, but um, he cast me in the next show. And that show was where I met John Collins. This was 30 years ago. And John Collins and I have been friends for a very, very long period of time. And um, uh, in 2007, he asked me to be one of the Black people in uh, The Sound and the Fury. And from that point on, I started working with Elevator Repair Services, which is where I met April. And uh, we have been company members um, since then. the way Baldwin and Buckley came about is that um, John offered me the lead in a checkoff play, but I didn't feel the affinity for that role. And it was the first time in my career that I said, you know what, this particular actor would be much better than me for this role. I'm not gonna take it. And he said to me, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, what would you like to do? And I said, like, I don't understand the question. He said, Greg, if you had to do a show with Elevator Repair Service, what would it be? And I was like, oh, my gosh, no one's ever asked me that question before. Wow. And so years ago, uh, my dear friend's father said to me, you should think about Baldwin. And Baldwin had been one of the few heroes that I had um, when I was growing up. And I was like, you know, I got to find something with James Baldwin. So I went onto YouTube, and I watched every interview, every documentary, and quite by accident, I came across a debate, which I didn't know before. And I watched a debate, and I thought, wow, this would be really great, because even though this debate happened in 1965, we could be having the same conversation today. In At the time, it was 2019. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I found the transcript, and I brought it to John. John read it. We had a reading of it, and the rest is history. He's like, we have to do this.
2: Awesome.
3: April. So uh, I guess my story uh, truncated is I'm originally from Texarkana, Texas. It's a really small town. So, you know, like, there's not a whole lot of, like, international theater going on in Texarkana. So uh, I went to school uh, at UT Austin as an English major and started doing community theater down there, kind of caught the latent acting bug that was always within me, even though I was a a shy, also churchy kid growing up, Um, but really kind of found myself and, uh, you know, uh, lost my shyness and performance because um, it, there was something about like creative writing and improv that was really uh, alive to me. Like I would I would record um, like fake sermons on cassette tapes <laughs> and like you know fake talk shows where I interviewed my two year old sister. And, you know, like, so there was there was some kind of performance thing that was always in me, but I never thought of acting as like a real job or, uh, you know, and I was like, super obsessed with like TV commercials and voiceovers and just like the difference between things shot on film and video, even though I didn't have the language for that. And no one around me did like I was really interested in uh, uh, entertainment and uh, kind of found an outlet for that in Austin, which was a big, uh, performance, uh, town, uh, college town where they had a lot of live theater going on. And, uh, so from there I started working in the, uh, the kind of community theater and regional theater there. And within a year, I felt like I had kind of worked with everybody I wanted to work with, uh, on stage in Austin, Texas. And, uh, got the courage and a sublet opportunity in new york and uh moved to new york in 2001 and uh you know started doing super scrappy downtown theater productions at like my first performance was uh something called uh, the e-train to jamaica center um at the new Mm Eureka poets cafe and uh you know i still had a southern accent and you know, some there was a line that uh, somebody said like one son, and somebody had to tell me how to say that because I didn't. I'm not from New York, so I was like one son. So I didn't, I didn't know how to, <laughs> how to deliver that line. Um, but uh, so started doing community theater downtown uh, in New York, or not not community theater. I'd just say like off off Broadway. And uh, mm-hmm. I did this show at Here Arts Center called Annabella Ema um, by uh, Lisa Demore, And Mark Barton was the lighting designer for that show. Uh, amazing lighting designer who also worked for elevator repair service and uh, found out uh, that ERS was working on The Sound and the Fury. And uh, as we talk about uh, in the piece, there at the time you know ers has had different black people be part of the company but at the time they there weren't any black people it was all white folks um and they were performing the sound in the fury or workshopping it and uh you know realizing that they were missing something not having black actors play black characters and so brought in myself Greg, uh, Keneza Shaw, and uh, another uh, person of color, uh, Randolph Curtis Rand, um, that's how we got involved in Elevator Repair Service, and so I'd done several productions with ERS, and uh, so next thing I know, I was, I was actually involved in the checkoff piece for a bit too and then like scheduling got in the way I had some other shows uh with other theater companies coming up and so I wasn't going to be able to do that one but Greg told me that they were going to do this Baldwin uh Buckley piece and I was like I just want to be around can I be like a consultant or can I just be in the room doing anything and I was like you know who James Baldwin was really good friends with Lorraine Hansberry. Hello, hello, look at me, you know, and it was kind of like <laughs> a joke. But I kind of insinuated myself into this process because I was like, um, who, uh, hi, Greg's my friend, um, I'm black. If, if we're going to be doing something with black people with ERS, um, hi. And so that's, <laughs> that's actually what happened. But like, at, at, right it. before, um, I don't think I was in it right before the pandemic hit, because I think one of the last rooms I was in, you know, before worrying about masks and testing and COVID and all of that, we were in Greg's apartment. Uh,
1: all of us. Yes,
3: everybody involved in this project to date. So that was Chris, Rashi Stevenson, right? No, we, no, we hadn't even, was Chris a part of it yet?
1: Yes, Chris was a part okay. of it, but I don't think he was here that time. Okay, night. yeah.
3: So it was yeah. Ben Williams, John Collins, moliochi uh, who's the, uh... Gavin. Gavin was there, and, uh, I was there just being nosy and, like, thought of, <laughs> like, hand sanitizing my hands a little bit before I went up, but like, you know, it was the day that, um, uh, Tom Hanks got COVID in Australia, and we were like, oh, I guess this Uh-oh. is a thing. Uh-oh, this is serious. I guess this is a thing. <laughs> this is serious. But not, you know, not thinking, like, you know, we had dinner at Greg's. we weren't, and then we read this play, and it was just kind of like, what are the possibilities? And I wasn't even involved then. So it was during the pan, early pandemic that, um, I don't even remember now how we finally got to the, um, can we write Lorraine Hansberry into it? I think uh, the idea came from like we have the debate, and as the debate happened historically, Baldwin speaks first and Buckley speaks second, and they, had a question about did they want to keep that order did we want to leave the audience with buckley or did we want to leave the audience with baldwin and also like Mm -hmm. you know the historical fact that baldwin won the debate hands down but like did we want the audience today's audience to vote themselves and what would that you know be like and i remember Mm -hmm. at one point greg you said like what I want this evening to be is a riot. Like, I think you even said like a race mm-hmm. riot. Like I, I want, mm-hmm. um, we, you wanted like a, a, a strong reaction from uh, the audience with like, you know, just how current this, mm-hmm. this language is um, talking about America's problem. That it won't it won't remember itself and where it comes from mm. and, and what it owes, uh, and what it owes us, uh, as black folks. So, um, I think where we got to was like, what what John kept saying that he wanted was like to spotlight Greg as a company member, as uh, a man. Uh, interpreting this text and I think I said something like that too Um, uh, you know because this is a you know this is somebody who's been around in the theater for 30 some odd years as you said and and has been with this company and is like a valued member of this theater company and like yeah it's like you want to give Greg a real role that he can like sink his teeth into Um, and um, so but the debate ends with the white guy talking and so the structure i think that we came with to solve it was like let's come back to baldwin let's come back to baldwin in repose where he's not mm-hmm. having to explain <laughs> the con- the condition of the world to anyone he doesn't have to prove anything uh mm-hmm. We can just see him, like, being a man in his space. And uh, so the thought came somehow that, like, you know, what if we imagine him in a space where uh, he's having one of these, like, late, raucous conversations with his friend Lorraine, who, by the time he had done the debate... uh, she had actually passed away
1: a month before Yeah,
3: mm. so you know, without making it like a she's a ghost, mm-hmm. um, we just want to take you maybe to where his mind goes in repose, and like yeah. this moment of like black community, um, familiarity, home uh. Just hanging out with a friend. And a lot of that was uh, also built on my and Greg's relationship being friends uh, in this business. And, you know, it kind of started from like, how much are we, you know, Baldwin and Hansberry? How much are we Sargent and Mathis? And so there was like <laughs> a little, like we were improving. And we kind of built, the way we started to build the piece was like we were, some of it was improv,ed and maybe it would be us kind of talking about the industry today, and uh, like having it bleed into some conversations that Lorraine and Jimmy had together. And so in our research, we were trying to find uh, like some exchanges. and it was hard to find like a conversation that they were having with each other. So we ended up pulling from different, uh, parts of their speeches. And, uh, yeah. I think at one point we pulled from, uh, a kind of eulogy that, uh, Baldwin wrote James Rhodes. Yeah. For, uh, Esquire magazine in 1969, mm-hmm. uh, five years after she had died and, uh, uh, to Be Young, Gifted, and Black was playing at the Cherry Lane. Mm. And so, oh my gosh, you know, we just, we called some of this language and kind of uh, pieced together that coda that is their actual mm-hmm. language. And then um, our own, like, conversations around, like, our involvement with this theater company.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton bank and Celtic bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
2: There is a, um, there's a line. It says to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. Mm-hmm. And that was in, That was in 1965 yeah and here we are today-
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the I love the the uh, choice of words. I love the play on the American dream mm-hmm. and the myth that is if you work hard, you play by the rules, mm-hmm. you can achieve success. That mm-hmm. is that is the dream that we sell, and yet Baldwin says, um, "I
1: picked pick the cotton. the cotton. That's I what. carried to it to market. Yep, you're absolutely and right.
2: I built the
1: railroad. The roads. Yep,
2: and I was for just nothing.
1: Like,
2: yes, for nothing. Underneath someone else's whip. Exactly. This American dream that we we have. This American dream." that we have, and I look at the pandemic, and you looked at this work even pre-George Floyd.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Because when I I first came across the work, when I first was watching it on YouTube, I said to myself, yes, things have changed. Some things have changed for people of color since 1965, but fundamentally, nothing really has changed. We're Mm -hmm. still on so many levels, treated as second-class citizens. Um, systemic r- racism is all over the place. We still have police brutality, issues with voting. I mean, what, these are all the things. And you know, this debate was happening during a time in America where um, there was a conservative movement to um, control the narrative just like it is right now. And I read this and I was just like, this conversation needs to continue. A whole new generation of people need to continue this conversation. If we're going to have any sort of hope for the future of people of color in this country.
2: So this is pre pandemic. You're looking at this pre George Floyd, and when I and I should say dual pandemics, right? We have the racial one and we have COVID. And I look at how COVID ravaged us, and I look at the parallelism between the statement, I pick the cotton. Black and brown folks were the essential employees for the most part, black and brown folks were the individuals who were most affected by both pandemics and it and i'm like and yet we are still here fighting for equity and i think about when buckley talks about um And I feel like he's kind of saying, well, you have it so much better when he talks about the um, you that black folks make more than others in some other countries. And Mm -hmm. he and he talks about um, being a mobile society in the world. And that is because you are American. And it sounds very eerily similar (laughs) to the things that we hear today today of shut up and dribble. How did you all decide to leave it up to the the watcher, the audience member and not because you could have gone any way with this, you know, Mm -hmm. but you chose to just stick to the text as is. What was that conversation like in that apartment?
1: I mean, we we did discuss it. And basically, we didn't want to go in there. I mean, it's very clear when you watch the debate um, that Baldwin wins but we didn't want to go in there and try to beat people over the head with the um, idea that Baldwin is right and you had to listen. You know, we have to work together, and Baldwin says this in the speech. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to just approach it where we would present the material and the conversation on either side would come up Regarding how people felt about the situation, so we were very, very, very clear not to um, to try to influence people in any way john was was adamant about that I you
3: know what I keep coming to is like as much as young folks now reach for Baldwin for memes and stuff, especially like. Right after George Floyd, I think uh, Baldwin is so clear in laying out the problem, and I think the the like clearest thinking I've seen today is about is about action that doesn't, uh require white people's permission and it's like taking uh the olive branch kind of out of the equation um mm. in a in an in a way that i think would would be very exciting to baldwin because uh as articulate as he was there was still always like a chance for uh white folks to uh look at themselves and get a buy-in. And, uh, you know, you even say in the debate, Greg, that like, there's some white people, there's some black folks that don't even want to listen to me or Martin Luther King. And I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that if that was true then, it's doubly true now. There are some folks that are mm-hmm. like, listen, like like we need to uh, work as a community and find new ways of uh, governing ourselves and taking care of ourselves and like,
1: Mm
3: -hmm. uh, you know, collective, collectivism as far as like organizing and and having resources Mm -hmm. for ourselves. Like there's all kinds of um, ideas that you're, you're seeing people actually execute. And it's not just about like, the American dream of let me get this size house and make this much income because people uh, are seeing that the, if we play into these structures, um, we're, we're, we're not really, really dismantling uh, the racism that's inherent in the, in mm-hmm. the structure of our country. Well you know,
2: it, you, you talk about the, you know, and the, after the murder of George Floyd, the memes and the quotes, and all of a sudden you're seeing videos, video clips of Baldwin all over again. And what do you think about the art of debate that no longer exists?
3: What I'll say that debate has that is missing in like meme culture meme is it you know in french it's meme, which is the same so it's like we're all gonna Mm -hmm. put out the same thing and copy Mm -hmm. retweet um, repost and it's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. a one-way wall of sameness and this is how we speak Mm -hmm. this is how we articulate that is a tool that can be effective when we want a certain kind of movement to happen, like um, arrest George Floyd's killers, Um, Mm -hmm. arrest and name the people who killed Breonna Taylor. Like there's there's Mm. something useful in being able to be like a wall of information when it's about something actionable um when it comes to like talking about ideas and nuances it's trickier uh because you can't meme nuance inherently Mm -hmm. in the structure like social media itself like is not it didn't turn out How the designers thought it would be they thought like oh free speech and really what the algorithm rewards is like eyes and attention so it's not like the best most sensible most equitable thoughts rule the day it's whatever gets the most attention rules the day Mm -hmm. and a lot of that's toxic and which is why social media writ large can be really toxic for a lot of folks
1: dangerous, dangerous.
3: Yeah. um so those are those are the limits and the tools that we have with this one way of communicating what debate mm-hmm. does is let you hear sentence by sentence the thoughts and the build-up and you know, it does require a little more of your attention than like two seconds to sit there and listen yeah, but to this I debate, also, to listen to what Baldwin I, has to say it takes time.
1: But I think for me, the idea of debate now is that people don't really listen. People just come in with a very strong um, point of view about things and they're not willing to compromise and even try to listen. You know, just in terms of social media, so many people get their, their fake news from social media, and that is their opinion. So you walk into these things and you feel like you're speaking against the wall in that, um, you know, you can be speaking truths. You can be, be you know, very introspective and, and come out with information that might help the situation, but nobody wants to hear it. That's what I have. That's my problem with debate in today's times.
2: And with debate, there's a reason that it's it's it was a part of school. It used to be a part of school, at least when I was growing up. You know, we had debate clubs. Mm-hmm. We and we had to research. Oh, and we had part. to know where the other person is coming from.
1: From yeah. In
2: order to 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 mount a a defense, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know to. to to both of your points, if we're not listening, then how are we knowing where the other person is coming from?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, in in watching this play on Sunday, I felt like there was a understanding of why the other felt that way. But there was not an agreement on how. Mm-hmm. And and maybe I and maybe I'm being generous <laughs> in, in saying that, you know, maybe Buckley performatively understood the why. I mean, because he you know, he states that or he mentions that he agrees that people were treated unfairly and but yet he still believed in the white race and their advance as
1: being the superior race to make all right. decisions for everybody else. But, you know, he also, this his own people because he, you know, there's that part in, um, in Buckley speech where, where he talks about, um, you know, about like 65% of white people, not voting, mm-hmm. There's many white people voting because mm-hmm. he is from a very sort of affluent background. Um, very, very affluent background. And he believes that even disenfranchised white people are um are are not even worthy. So it's more like an elitism in a way, which is even scarier to to think about how, you know, white supremacy grabs that kind of power like that. It's, it's, it's
3: And that's how it's been like who who was first who yeah. could vote was landowning white men
1: hmm. You know. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Because this debate took place in February of 1965.
1: 1965, Yes.
2: And the Voting Rights Act didn't wasn't signed until August. It wasn't. Yes. It wasn't signed
1: 1965.
2: until August. Mm-hmm. And those are those are things that no one can dispute. I mean, right. we're talking actual laws
1: mm-hmm.
2: to disenfranchise a group of People, yeah. mm-hmm. and then we fast forward today and we look at people having to stand in line for hours, people's votes being challenged, and so for no protections anymore
3: yeah. because that's not a problem right. anymore.
2: Well, you can't even get water, no, you, you better not <laughs> give them water,
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: yeah. And this was this is what like 50 50. 57 years so, ago 57 years ago
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i feel like sometimes we like to distance ourselves so far away and act as if that was such a long time ago and when i say we i mean the collective we mm-hmm. you know in this in this country
1: Listen, but it wasn't I'm, I'm telling you like just the other day i couldn't get a cab <laughs> Oh, you, you know what i mean so i i feel like every conscious moment of my life has been some sort of microaggression sometimes in regards to race mm. in regards to race you know james baldwin spent so much time out of the country mm-hmm. um and You know, um, when I was a junior in college, I studied in England for the year and I was 20 years old when I went. And it was the first place in my entire life where people wanted to know who I was as opposed to tell me who I was. My very first time. And I'm just like, you know. That's sad. nothing, Nothing has changed, really. People are still telling me, oh, you are this. You gotta be this this is your box. And I'm like, no, I'm not living in your box. I'm living in my box.
2: What would you like people to take away from this discussion? What what would you like to see happen? What would you want? what What are you hoping that people get from this?
1: Debate. Continuing the conversation. Opening this conversation up to a new generation who are not stuck in their ways, like my generation, who are willing to stop being, April, I'll let you do the line.
3: Stop being liberal, liberal and become American radicals, as Lorraine says. And become American radicals. Yeah. Ask questions, ask questions of ourselves, ask questions of the structures that we take for granted as, you know, American life and how it is, and uh, really, really ask ourselves why why we think certain things are immovable defaults and and how we can disrupt these systems.
2: And that's not just for black folks, that's everybody. Oh
3: yeah. I mean the the Lorraine Hansberry quote that Greg was referring to was uh she was talking to white people, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which you know, in inside our context of like, you know, yes, elevator repair service. Is a predominantly white institution that that has black company members that it values, but like you know, we we call out elevated repair service in this too. You know, it's like let's all be part of this conversation and let's not, you know, um, white liberals who are coming to the public theater to see this. It's not just let's take our little woke medicine and go back to, you know, business as usual. Let's let's interrogate ourselves, too. Oh, my God. okay,
2: I'm not going to even go there. So (laughs) continue the conversations, as Greg said.
3: Continue the conversation when you leave the theater.
2: Well, it, it, it absolutely did that for me. And I thank you both for for putting in the time and the emotional work that it takes to play these types of roles to embody these types of characters um i feel like people don't understand that we never get to not be ooh
3: <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so before we wrap, I have just one final question. What piece of advice would you give to the future Black leaders of Broadway?
1: Um, I don't know if you know this, but April is on Broadway right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, Piano
3: Lesson Broadway. Uh, come see us. Mm-hmm. We have run through January. Yeah. I would say to the Black leaders... I'd say let's look at pay equity. This is labor. This is a business. Artists are workers. That's why we have a union. And let's make sure that our workers are paid what they're worth so they can make a living wage so that uh, Broadway is not for the already wealthy and that the American theater is not for the independently wealthy, that it's for the people. The, the theater is called, mm-hmm. the, where we're performing Baldwin Buckley, is the public theater. It's meant to be for the public. The arts are for the public. The arts are for the people. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's make Broadway not a prohibitively expensive place. Let's pay folks, and let's let people see... work and and make it accessible because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's money out there and there's a redistribution of resources. All all of this is for us. There's -hmm. there's Black work on Broadway and there's Black people making Black work for Black folks on Broadway. So we need to see Black folks on either side of the theater.
1: Exactly. If I could just add to the brilliance Mm -hmm. of April Mathis. you know, uh, for me, it would be about more opportunity for more Black shows featuring more Black artists. James Baldwin said in this time that, you know, basically Black people ignored going to the theater because the theater ignored them. And so I want to see more Black people in the seats seeing shows that represent our way of life. One of the great things about, you know, the play A Raisin in the Sun was that it was the first time on Broadway where you actually saw what it was like to live in a Black family and the issues that they went through. And we need more of that. You know, April is, you know, in an August Wilson play who, who, you know, no better example these days of, of, you know, the Black experience, you know. And, you know, she's a... She's she's at the forefront of that, sharing that with a new audience today. People need to know, you know, what our stories are. Maybe that might help with the the progress that we need to make. So. Listen up, Broadway producers, listen up.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you both for joining me today. It has been a pleasure uh, chatting with the two of you so
3: great to talk to you thanks so much for having us
2: thank
1: you thank you thank you so much
2: i want to thank our guests and you our listeners you could have been doing anything else but you chose to spend your time with me and i am grateful be sure to subscribe at bpn.fm slash bbb so you'll never miss an episode while you're at it tell a friend I'm your host, Janine Scott, and we at the Broadway League hope you enjoyed this episode of The Black Business of Broadway.